morning, church. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to thank those of you who have been uh, joining us in this season of prayer. We're right in the middle of a 77 days of prayer as we're praying through as a church family what God has next for us. We believe that a change is going to come, as Charity just sang about, and we also believe that he wants to use us as a church family to be a part of that change in our city, around the world, and for future generations. We believe that he wants it to be for him, by his love, by his power, and for his glory. And so thank you for praying. As, as I've been praying uh, over these last few weeks, uh, and, and each week we've been receiving guiding prayers, they've led me to pray in a direction that I'm not used to normally praying. And one of the things that the Lord brought to mind, even just this last week, was how Desert Springs has a legacy of blessing in this community. Many of you, I think, have been blessed by the ministry of Desert Springs and the work of those who have come before us. Many in our communities, I talk with community leaders and just our, my neighbors, uh, they'll talk about how Desert Springs was a pivotal point uh, in serving them and blessing them. And also as I've been praying, uh, just in thinking about my life, I came to know the Lord at this church. I got baptized right there years ago. I got married right here 13 years ago. No, I'm pretty sure that's right. My children have been dedicated here. In fact, in a few weeks, two of my older children will be baptized here. Desert Springs has a legacy of blessing, not only in this community and around the world, but also in my life. And as we've been praying, one of the things we've been praying towards is, God, how do you want us to leave a legacy of blessing for those who come after us? And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't had an opportunity to join together with us for this season of prayer, we're halfway through, but I'd love to have you join us. In the back of the seat in front of you is a card with this logo on it. You can grab that, fill it out, drop it in the metal boxes by the doors, or direct and connect as you leave this morning. Let us know that you'd like to join us in these 77 days of prayer. The, the thing that'll happen is you'll get a weekly either text or email just as a reminder to pray as well as a one guiding prayer a week. And also on the back walls, you'll see stickers that have this logo on it that we're putting, stickers and magnets that we're putting all over the place. Uh, I've been keeping mine on my uh, notes little thing here just to remind us to pray. So I'd encourage you to grab uh, one, two, or uh, three of those as you leave. Put it on your phone, put it on your fridge, whatever it is to remind us to pray. We believe that a change is going to come, and we believe that Jesus wants to use his church family here at Desert Springs to be a part of that change. And today, one of the things that we're going to uh, kick off is a sermon series called Perspective. And we're looking at how it is that Jesus shapes how we see the world. And in particular, we're going to talk about how Jesus shapes the things that shape us the things that mold us. And today, we're going to talk about how Jesus shapes our perspective of our enemies. In fact, I have this question. For those of you that are Jesus followers here today, I want to give you this question. Does Jesus shape how you see your enemies? Now, no, you don't, don't lie to me. Because y'all are lying. I know we're in church, and I know you all are like, the answer should be yes. <laughs> Say yes. But I'm going I'm to push, all right? Now, a lot of us, uh, by the way, this isn't going to be a fun sermon. Trust me, it was miserable for me preparing this sermon, because one of the things about sermons is if you're, if you're worth your salt, you've got to preach it to yourself first and make sure it works. This ain't an easy sermon. 
And we're going to, and here, here's, here's the thing too, we're going to talk about things that you don't talk about in polite company. But I hope you realize that we ain't polite company. This is a church family, and we talk about real issues. And so uh, I, I want to make you a 100% guarantee, especially if you're newer to Desert Springs, here's my 100% guarantee. If you hang out with Desert Springs, any, any people who are part of Desert Springs, for any period of time, I make you a 100% guarantee that you will be sinned against. You will be offended. You will have your prejudices checked. Somebody will say something that causes you to go, ah! And I believe firmly that Jesus takes people who have nothing in common except for him, and he puts them into church families like ours in order to shape one another more and more into his image. And so here's the deal. If you're offended today, listen, I've been offended the last week prepping for this sermon, so we'd just be mad together. But God forbid that we treat God's word as a trite addition to our own prejudices and perspectives. Rather, let us be a people, regardless of where we're from, come to God's word in humility, expecting that there is probably something going on in our lives that ain't in line with the gospel. And so I'm going to ask you again. Does Jesus shape how you see your enemies? Thank you. Sometimes. Like when pastor's calling me out. But what about on Monday? Now for some of us, especially in suburban Phoenix, we might think, well, I don't have any enemies. No. I, I, I think we lie to ourselves. It take, listen, it takes the quiet of comfortable suburbia to live under the idea that I have no enemies. So let's talk about who are your enemies. I want you to think about your home. I want you to think about your workplace. I want you to think about your neighborhood. I want you to think about your community. I want you to think about your nation. I want you to think about your political persuasion. I want you to think about other nations and other political persuasions. Y'all got enemies? Oh, maybe Jesus was wrong to assume that we have enemies. No? Have you ever been wronged? You see, for those of us who have been abandoned, betrayed, and abused, for those of us, of us who have been marginalized, for those of us who have grown un up under the oppressive thumb of systematic injustice, oh, when Jesus says enemies, we know who we're talking about. So let me ask you this question. I want you to fill in the blank for me. Who do you fantasize about being removed from the cosmos? <laughs> You're driving around, right? Taking a shower, can't quite fall asleep quickly, and your mind begins to wander. And you begin to go to pain points in your life. And then you begin to think about lightning and the statistical probability of this particular person or people group being struck by it. Y'all got enemies? As I was thinking about this, I started making a list. Yes, many of you are on it. Right, Dave, am I, am I lying here, buddy? No, I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, polite company we ain't. 
was thinking about, um, oh man, you know what's fascinating is as a culture, uh, for those of us that have, have grown up in, in the American culture, I know not all of us have, but uh, there's something interesting. We spend billions of dollars entertaining ourselves on revenge fantasy movies and books. Like Mel Gibson, Liam Neeson, and uh, Bruce Willis have all made their careers on you shelling out money to live out your fantasies of revenge through them. Now, I'm not saying that they're bad movies. They're not great. But I've watched almost all of them. <laughs> because you and I are not that different. Because when I've been wronged, when I've been abandoned, betrayed, and abused, the thing I want to do to my enemy is get vengeance. Oh, man. I want it so bad. In fact, when I have spare time, I pay money to watch someone else's enemies, fake enemies, be fake blown up. And the explosions it could just get bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's the same idea. Right now, we are in a craze of Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones is a book series and television series built around this one premise. Vengeance is mine. And I will crush my enemies. The interesting thing about the storyline, I'm not, I'm not um, recommending that you engage in it, but the interesting thing about the storyline is it all just ends in despair. Seeking revenge, seeking to kill my own enemies, just... Do you know how that goes? It just ends in more enemies and more despair. I was also thinking about who my enemies are. You know that um, there's only a couple of years in my lifetime that I know that the nation I was born in hasn't been at war? I've only known a couple of years of peace. I think about my parents' generation. It's about the same. I think about my grandparents' generation. It's about the same. Now, the enemies keep changing. For, and, I, and remember the polite company thing. Here we go. For me, my generation, I was told that it was the Arabs that were my enemies. The, the terrorists. The axis of evil. The, I was told those are my enemies. And we've been at war in one form or the other with our enemies for the majority of my life. I remember as a kid growing up watching the Gulf War on television. The first one. I think about my parents' generation. It was the Russians, Soviets, of course the Koreans, the Vietnamese. Think about my, my grandparents' generation. It was the Germans, the Japanese, the Italians, and the generation before that, who was it? And the generation before that, who was it? And the generation before that, who was it? Oh, we have enemies. The question is not whether or not I am to have enemies, for I will have enemies. The question is, how do we view our enemies? And so I ask you again, does Jesus shape how you view your enemies? Now there's a normal view. Jesus calls it out. Uh, Jesus did this sermon. It was called the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we call it. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, we'll have it up on the screen here. This is what Jesus says is the normal status quo perspective. The normal perspective is this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. You guys ever heard that before? Come on, talk to me now. Love your neighbor. Now, the assumption here is that neighbor is people who are like me, my people group, right? My neighbor, my, my community. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your people group as yourself. Love people that are like you as yourself. Is that easy to do? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, right? Yeah, 
I mean, some of you haven't met some people like me, but, you know, for the most part, it's relatively easy, and it's kind of expected. And hate your enemy. Does that make absolute sense? Of course. That makes the most sense in the world. If people want to destroy me, what do I want back for them? Destroy them. That's right. I want to turn on the Metallica CD and kill them all. Yeah, get them, Bruce Willis. This is the normal perspective that, that every generation sees in full vivid display to one degree or the other. Uh, one um, rabbi I was talking to actually said he learned from a historian that through recorded history, there's only 50 countable years where there hasn't been war. Because the normal perspective is to love my own and to hate the other. But Jesus says, now, now, now here's the deal. If we live out this normal perspective, what do we get? We get this. The endless cycle of despair, destruction, and more enemies begetting more enemies begetting more enemies. Are you tired yet? Now I know you want your enemies dead. But if you take a zoom back, when will it end? And so Jesus shows up on the scene in space-time history, God in the flesh 2,000 years ago, and he says this. But I tell you, love your enemies. <laughs> there must be some translation error. <laughs> love your enemies and what? Pray. TV time out. Is pray active or passive? Is this something that you do or something that happens to you? Something that you do. This command is for you to actually do a thing. To do a thing in a positive direction. To do a thing in a positive direction for whom? People you hate and the people who hate you. So Jesus shows up. He rolls out and says, love your enemies. Don't like that. He doubles down and says, pray for those who what? Pray for those who what? Okay. You got it figured out? How we feel as a church? We, we knocking this one out of the park? I've been reading y'all's Facebook. I've been hearing how we talk about the other political party. I've been hearing us talk about those godforsaken such and such. I've been hearing us root and cheer when people get blown up that we don't like. How are we doing? I mean, are we just crushing it right now? You see, we've heard this before. If you've been following Jesus for, for more than six months, and I know that some of us it's been less than that, so this might be your first time, this is like one of the most infamous things that Jesus said. You could survey... Uh, 10 out of 10 people, and uh, most of them will say something like, yeah, Jesus said something like this. But how are we allowing Jesus to shape our view of our enemy? You see, we know what Jesus said, right? For most of the Jesus followers in the room, we haven't said anything new yet, have we? This is the question we're really asking. How? How do I love my enemies? Yeah, am I barking up the wrong tree here? Have you guys heard, love your enemies? 
You guys heard this before? Is that new information to you? No. So what's the real question we're asking? How? Like the medium enemies got that one down. The mild inconveniences, yeah. But the people who are actively trying to destroy me and my way of life, So here's how. The sun and the rain. Go on. Live it out. Yeah. The sun and the rain. You guys ever seen the sun? Phoenicians? I know you're not supposed to directly look at it, but y'all have. Have y'all ever seen the sun? Y'all ever seen the rain? Phoenicians, kind of, yeah. Once, when it ha whenever it happens, we like strip off our clothes and run around like crazy people. It's raining. How on earth do we do this? You look at the sun, and you look at the rain. Now, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Jesus continues. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, what I think he's saying here is this. If you say that you are sons and daughters of God, then you are called to live like your dad. If we are children of God, then we are to model our lives after our heavenly father. Y'all with me? For he, who's the he? God our father. You guys got me so far? For he causes his, what's the word? Son, to rise on the whom? and sends on the, so who does God give blessing to? In, does that include y'all's enemies? I know you're praying for that rain in hopes that the lightning will come. Maybe it'll flood their house. That'll serve them. What, what Jesus is saying here is, as you look at the seasons of sowing and reaping, of, of harvest time, God has blessed both the evil and the just, both the righteous and the unrighteous, with food and water. So how is your heavenly Father behaving? Who is he blessing? Who is he seeking their flourishing? Is he, is he only seeking, hold it, is he only seeking the reconciliation, restoration, and redemption of the righteous? Is he not also seeking the flourishing, redemption, and restoration of the evil? Does that include his enemies? Yes, it does. So how do we as children behave? Well, we think, okay, so God our Father sends his Son and rain to give blessing to the righteous and the unrighteous, to the evil and to the just. And so how do I love my enemy? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you, today for the rest of the sermon, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to give you three prisoners' perspectives. And possibly a fourth. And somewhere in here, we're going to share communion together. And so for those of you who would like to take communion, I just ask you even right now to prepare your hearts. But the love of enemy is not some stupid, trite, mushy, 
I should just be a doormat for everybody's statement. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not, in fact, Miroslav Volf, who is Croatian, he, uh, I believe, is a professor at uh, Yale. He was caught up in the Croatian-Serbian conflict, Kosovo, in the 90s, which I remember. And he had members of his family raped and murdered. He himself was imprisoned and tortured. And Miroslav Volf follows Jesus. And Volf looked at this text and said, how do I love the one who killed my family, who raped my sister, and who imprisoned and tortured me unjustly? How on earth do I do it? And this is what Wolf says. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to paraphrase. This is Wolf, and he wrote uh, a book, by the way, called uh, The End of Memory, which I would uh, highly uh, encourage you to buy. It is not love which is blind to the misdeeds of enemies. So this is not saying ignore the misdeeds of our enemies. It is also not love which is completely negligent about the safety of oneself or of a third party. It is rather a love that can be described as benevolence and kind-heartedness with a particular goal. And the goal is to return the wrongdoer back to the good. What does it mean to love one's enemy? It's not to be a doormat for them. It's not to just let them continue on in their evil. No, God never gives us that instruction. Rather, our love is our heart's posture towards our enemy, that every action, every statement, everything that we do towards our enemy would be with the aim of them turning back to what is good, of them being redeemed, not destroyed, of them being restored, not annihilated. You with me? The love of enemy is a heart's alignment, not with aiming at them, but with aiming at their flourishing. It is still a proactive act from strength, not weakness. It is not to be a doormat and let their evil continue. It is, in fact, to align our hearts towards them, recognizing that at the end of the day, and here we go, at the end of the day, they are not the true enemy. They have just now, in this time, given themselves over to the domain of darkness, or to the chaotic waters, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. They've turned to and believed in a lie, and our hope for them should not be their annihilation, but their restoration. Why? Because it is God's hope for all of his enemies. I'm going to push it. That's his hope for you. How do we love our enemies? There's a writer in the early 1900s named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was wrongfully imprisoned. Again, a nation at war. And this is what Solzhenitsyn says. If it were only all so simple, if there were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. For who among us can say, in and of myself, I am not an enemy of God? Who among us can say, no, in and of myself, I'm completely righteous before God? So here's what we're going to do. The only way for us to love our neighbors is to first recognize God's love for us and to be filled up with that love. I'm going to ask the band to come back out. 
and they're going to sing a song. And this song is designed to be, to be a corporate prayer for us. And so as they sing, I want you to hear the words. We're going to actually dim the lights. And I would like for you, right where you're at, to consider the words of this song. And then in just a moment, I'm going to come back and I'm going to lead us in a time of communion, recognizing that it is only by God's power that we actually can fulfill his command to love our enemy.
breath in. So how do we love our enemies? Well, first, we pray for God to fill us with his love. And as part of that, we recognize his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says this, that God has demonstrated his love towards you you, and you, and you, and you, in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, gave his life for you. Whatever we think about our enemies, however we aim at our enemies, it must be in light of this truth, that though we were once enemies of God, he allowed his body to be broken and bloodshed for you. Do you know that God loves you so much? I'm going to ask our host to come forward. In just a moment, they're going to pass the elements. They're going to pass the elements of bread and juice. And as they pass those elements around, I would ask that you would take them and hold on to them. 
And I would ask for you to reflect on this truth, that God loves you so much, and he's demonstrated his love for you in this, that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, he gave his life for you. After we're done passing and everyone has the elements, I will come back up and lead us. Now I want you to pause. Before we finish, look around. We are a room full of natural enemies. There are people in this room who grew up in nations that were at war with one another. There are people in this room whose nations are still at war with one another. There are people in this room who have the exact opposite political views of others in this room. There are people in this room who have been abused, and there are those in this room that have been the abuser. There are people in this room who have been abandoned, and there are those in this room who have abandoned. There are people in this room who have been betrayed. And there are those in this room who have betrayed. Consider that on the first, on that last supper, Jesus was dining with his betrayer, with those who had abandoned him. When he gave us the instruction to take and eat and take and drink, he did so among enemies who he longed to make into friends. How is it that we love our enemies? We recognize first God's love for us. And then we strive to live according to that, moment by moment. That same night, Jesus took a cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin you drink in remembrance of him. For us as a church family, we long for each of you to live and to flourish as disciples of Jesus. One of the things that you'll see all around our campus, in fact, there, there's an image of it on the, in the uh, connection card in the back of the seat in front of you that says next steps. One of those next steps that we want to encourage every disciple of Jesus to take is to prioritize the gathering for corporate worship, worshiping together. And here's why. There is nothing fantastic or curious about a bunch of the same people gathering together. It's the most normal thing in the world. But one of the strangest, most compelling, most awe-inspiring things that happens is that Jesus gathers together natural enemies. And when my friends, frankly, who have yet to know Jesus, meet me hanging out with people who are just like me, they're not impressed. But when my friends show up here, my friends who have yet to know Jesus, and they see many of you, they wonder, what is going on here? And it's, it's Jesus. And so when we gather together, one of the reasons why I prioritize this gathering is because it's a way to put into practice what Jesus taught us, to love our enemies. I love you guys. May we be a people who live in light of God's radical love for us.
And would you stand as we sing?